uh, with us, you can catch up that way. So, um, Matthew 27, let's read the text, and then we will uh, jump in here. Matthew 27. Last week we had 75 verses, <laughs> uh, and communion. <laughs> that's amazing. Uh, <laughs> this week we only have 66, so it's like, that's a breeze, right? I mean... <laughs> Uh, it's a lot of um, a lot of narrative that uh, hopefully will um, just take some time to soak in what's happening uh, in the scene here, and uh, and and uh, ask the Lord to speak to us. So let's read through it. We'll pray one more time, and then we'll uh, we'll jump into um, into Matthew twenty-seven, verse one says this: um, When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful, it's an important word there, remorseful, and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priests took the silver pieces and said, it's laughable. They said, it isn't lawful to put them into the treasury because they are the price of blood. And they consulted together and brought, or excuse me, bought with them the potter's field, to bury strangers in. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Now, Jesus stood uh, before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him not a word, so that the governor marveled greatly. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Some translations actually say that his name was Jesus Barabbas. There are a couple manuscripts that say that. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Messiah, the Christ? For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? They said, Barabbas! Pilate said to them, What then shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? They all said to him, Let him be crucified. Then the governor said, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, saying, Let him be crucified! When Pilate saw that, that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers 
of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. Now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there, and they put up over his head the accusation written against him, This is Jesus the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and another on the left. And those who passed by, passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross. Let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Now, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, truly, this was the Son of God. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were there looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Now, when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. 
This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary, sitting opposite the tomb. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away, and say to the people, He has risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go your way and make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Uh, Father, As we take the time this morning to go through this this portion of, of the writings again, we ask that you would meet us where we are. As we consider again the, the love that has been demonstrated for us, in the offering of Jesus. Father, I'm afraid that sometimes we move so fast. We're so busy. It's no wonder that our lives are so frequently riddled with anxieties, Lord. Would you teach us to rest in the kingship of Jesus? In the power of your kingdom, Lord. Because we believe that the kingdom of God is righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit whom you've given to us. Lord, may we know, not just talk about it, may we know it, Lord, when we're alone with our thoughts in you, may we know it. Father, would you keep changing us, please, keep changing us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So yearly, one of the festivals Israel celebrated, we mentioned last week, was this festival called um, Passover, which brought directly a couple other feasts or a couple other celebrations. One was the Feast of First Fruits, immediately after Passover, and then the next was that Passover itself began a week-long celebration called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Or when we say feast. Uh, we might think of uh, the idea of a party or a celebration. Okay, that's what these things were. were. They were they were gatherings. Sometimes the feasts themselves weren't necessarily a, a party for celebration. Sometimes they were a party for mourning. Think of like Yom Kippur, right? The Day of Atonement. It was a day set aside for fasting and for mourning of sin, and a reminder of the sending away of sin uh, in the. Um, with that uh, substitutionary um, laying on of the hands and the confessing of the sin on one of the animals, and they took that animal and they, they, they led it away. I mean, it's this incredible picture there at Yom Kippur. But regardless, Passover was a time where they were remembering their freedom from Egypt, right? Passover was about remembering freedom from Egypt. And there was a particular celebration that had been uh, dictated over the years. There were specific things that God commanded them to do in the law. We're not going to go into tremendous detail with exactly what all of those things were right now, only to say that when Passover was first instituted, it was to be done quickly and 
because Israel was about to leave Egypt, right? This was the final judgment against Egypt, the tenth of the ten plagues, and it was the death of the firstborn of everything throughout all of Egypt. But God said anyone who sacrificed a lamb and put the blood of that lamb on the doorposts of their house, the firstborn, not only of, of their family, of their children, but the firstborn, even of their animals who belonged to that household, would not die when that death angel passed over through all of Egypt. It was the tenth and final plague. It was the, the last straw before Pharaoh finally said, fine, you guys can go, <laughs> right? <laughs> After all of these firstborn died of, land, of, of people and, and uh, beasts all throughout the land, okay? But God had made a way for Israel, anyone who believed him, who believed the instruction of Moses, to be saved, right? It was through the sacrifice of the lamb and then applying the blood of that lamb on the doorposts of their house, okay? After the death angel passed over, the families of Israel, as they survived that, uh, that ordeal, as they were preserved from it, kept from it, because of the blood of the lamb, they then leave. They then go out of Egypt and they begin their journey. And as they're leaving, all of Egypt then is giving them all sorts of gifts and all sorts of stuff as they had been instructed to go. See, at that point, the Egyptians themselves were like, get out. Like, we've been dealing with all these plagues now. Like, just leave. And the best that the magicians of Egypt could muster was most of the time only to duplicate the plagues. They didn't make any of them better whenever they did their their magician work. All they did was duplicate the plagues. They essentially made them worse frequently by all of their incantations and all the things that they tried to do. Regardless, yearly, this was to be a memorial for Israel. And it was coupled with, as I mentioned before, the Feast of first fruits, the beginning of the harvest season where the first fruits offer offerings were offered to God, the very beginning of the harvest, the early fruits, if you would, okay? And then it ushered in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and all throughout the scriptures, and in um, uh, leaven itself is used as an illustration of sin, and uh, through this whole week-long festival, Israel was to be, the nation of Israel was to be getting all leaven out of their houses. Anything with leaven in it, you were to get rid of, um, during this feast of unleavened bread, and you were to keep it. In fact, Paul's going to use these feasts as illustrations for how we live as Christians. Because Jesus is the Passover lamb sacrificed for our sins, we keep the feast of unleavened bread by fleeing from sin, right? The same way that they were to remove leaven from their houses, we keep the feast of unleavened bread by removing sin from our lives, right? The things that you know that are dishonoring to God, that Jesus died to rescue you from, Get away from that stuff, right? <laughs> Keep running away from it, right? So uh, the other part of that festival, the part that, that is referred to as the Feast of First Fruits, is this incredible picture of Jesus being the first fruit raised from the dead, right? He's the first of those raised from the dead. And then we all follow him. That Our confidence is in this fact, that because Jesus was raised from the dead, we have been united together with him by believing him, and we too will be raised in a new life, in a new body, just as he was. Okay? That is our confidence and our hope. And, and so much so that Paul the Apostle, when he's writing in 1 Corinthians, Paul's like, listen, if this isn't true, if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, then people should pity us. We should be, we should be like, people should just show us pity all the time because we're just obviously living a deceived life, not realizing that there is no resurrection from the dead. But Paul's confidence was that there is a resurrection from the dead. In fact, Paul himself had seen the resurrected Jesus. It's this remarkable appearance that Paul had, a very special one that caused him to refer to himself as one born out of due season when he talked about his own apostleship. The other apostles had spent time with Jesus in his ministry, right? And they had seen him not only before the resurrection, but then after the resurrection. But Paul had this very peculiar place of having this appearance of Jesus after the resurrection, where he was specifically instructed by Jesus to go to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews with the great news, with the gospel of, of the resurrection from the dead. So this yearly event was happening. 
And it culminated, the whole point of this that God gave them through Moses was that it was to be wrapped up or culminated in this one offering for all sin, the offering of Jesus. It was always to point to that. That's why when John the Baptist sees him, we talked about this last week, when John the Baptist sees Jesus coming to his baptism, John the Baptist says, Look or behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, Jay the Bean in, right? <laughs> That's his, like, hip rapper name. <laughs> I know, I'm ridiculous. It's fine. Um, I stole that from somebody else anyway, so it's fine. <laughs> Um, John the Baptist knew uh, that at that time he was confident in his understanding of the scriptures and of Jesus' fulfillment of them. Okay, and Just as when that death angel passed over, everyone who had the blood of the Lamb applied to the doorposts of their home, their lives, their family was preserved. So the reality is true for us as well. We too have to have the blood applied to our lives, right? <laughs> applied to us by believing him. When our confidence lies not in our works to rescue us, but in the sacrifice of Jesus alone as our only hope, that is the great news. I don't have to keep up a facade or even try to keep up good works in order to be rescued. He rescues sinners. <laughs> Guys! <laughs> He justifies the ungodly, Paul writes to the church in Rome. Yes, this is great news. This is the gospel. In a world full of people trying to say, be your best self and do better and you're such a failure because you didn't do it this way or you should have done this and you should have done the other. Listen, there are a ton of should have done's in my life. Tons, millions of them. And I failed most of them. My only hope is Jesus. And so we come now to the Passover sacrifice, not just in memoriam, but the true Passover. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Who ushers in, remember what we talked about last week, the new covenant that Jesus told us about in Jeremiah 31? Not like the old covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai, that covenant that they broke, but a new covenant. I will write my law in your mind and in your heart, and every one of you will know me from the least to the greatest. And nobody will go to another one and say, know the Lord, because you'll all know him if you're in this new covenant. <laughs> and what's more... <clears throat> your sins and your lawless deeds, he says, I will remember no more. Praise him. <laughs> Sin is forgiven. Praise him. We are rescued by the blood of Jesus. Let's look at Matthew 27 and see a watch as Jesus suffers for us in ways that I, I don't think we fully will comprehend. <laughs> when morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. Now it seems that this is a sort of a, um, a rehash of the trial they had overnight. The tradition of the elders was that they were not to have trials overnight. So the fact that they even had one was itself a violation of the tradition of the elders. But what they did was they gathered again when morning came in order to sort of have the official religious trial. So they gathered together again when morning came and they officially declared him guilty of blasphemy and therefore of death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor, when they had bound him. Guys, as we look at this, I want, I want for you to see the incredible humility of the God-man, Jesus. The one who was in the beginning with God, in the beginning was God who without him nothing was made that was made, because all things were made through him. He is the Word of God. And in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and God said, Light be, and light was. This God allowed his own creation to bind him. When they had bound him, they led him away to the governor. 
and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, who was the governor. There was for years, and hasn't been so much recently because of some archaeological discoveries over the past 30 years, but there was some criticism of this idea of Pontius Pilate himself because there was scant evidence of his existence uh, before about 20 or 30 years ago, but uh, there has been dug up. I love every time they dig more stuff up in Israel because it's always like, oh, it's exactly what the Bible said the whole time. <laughs> so uh, it's wonderful. And, and they found uh, some inscriptions written to... Um, specifically for Pontius Pilate. I believe there's one in uh, Caesarea Maritime. Uh, Caesarea Maritime was the, the place where I believe he usually would stay. During the feast, he would come down to Jerusalem. There are two uh, cities of Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi and then Caesarea Maritime. Caesarea Maritime is a, a beach city on the Mediterranean Sea, and Caesarea Philippi is further up in the uh, northern part of Israel. But um, regardless... Um, they found an inscription, uh, this incredible inscription that mentions Pontius Pilate very directly. So, anyhow, um, when they had bound him, as we read, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful. I want to make sure you note that word there. He was remorseful. He was full of sorrow when he saw what had happened to his friend, really, Jesus. Yes, he had been stealing from him, from the treasury, from the, uh, the money that they had as a group. And yes, he had betrayed him for the price of a slave, 30 shekels of silver. But he was remorseful. Uh, when I looked at some of the headings in um, some of my, some of the, uh, like even this one I have in my, in my digital Bible here, it says Judas repents. I think that's probably not exactly right. I don't think it's the, the concept of the real concept of repentance or a change of mind. And that's, that phrase, that word, is actually not used here. It only speaks of him being sorry or having sorrow over the results of his actions. And yes, he goes back. Yes, he throws the money down uh, in the temple. But his sorrow drives him not to change his mind and to go to Jesus and trust him, but his sorrow drives him to kill himself as many people's sorrows do. There certainly is weight to uh, sorrow and to grief. And if deep inside we have no confidence in the resurrection of Jesus and in who He really is, I, I, don't, know, I don't know what one might do. I don't know where one could find hope. <clears throat> I know that in Him there is hope. And it is in Him that I have found hope in my sorrows. Judas was sorry. Seeing that he had been condemned, he was remorseful, and he brought back the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Now that idea of sinning by betraying innocent blood brings us back to some of Jeremiah's prophecies, where Jeremiah talks about this idea of uh, betrayal and the ideas of uh, betraying innocent blood, that sort of stuff, innocent blood being on hands, that kind of stuff is carried through in a couple of places through Jeremiah's prophecies. And some of them I believe you'll find around Jeremiah 18 and 19. There's a couple of references to that stuff there. He was remorseful, and he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest. There is sorrow that leads to death, Paul writes later on in one of his letters. But godly sorrow leads to repentance, right? to a change of mind. Lots of people know what it's like to feel sorry. Like you watch the, so many people, like when they are running away from the police on some of the police TV shows, right? And they get caught and they're really sorry, right? For what they did, right? It's like, well, now you're sorry because you got caught. You know what I mean? But like, stop what you're doing, right? Like, change your mind, right? <clears throat> Godly sorrow produces repentance. Um, He said, verse 4, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. So they had made this agreement with uh, Judas 
Judas now feels sorry about the fact that they had condemned Jesus to death, and so now he takes the money back, and he's like, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. <laughs> Not like I've sinned by it. I mean, he agreed to this whole deal, you know? <laughs> like, he went to them and said, what will you give me? <laughs> the things that sometimes people do when they love money. It's much of the criticism, it seems, that's leveled against the whole um, commercial idea of capitalism frequently is, is leveled against the idea of those who have money and just love money. And so they make really bad choices that instead of using that money in ways that's good and beneficial for society and for others, sometimes they just hoard it for themselves. It's a criticism leveled against the um, ideas of capitalism. I would say that it's really not any different in any other type of uh, system either. It's only who has that money. Because <laughs> greed rules the human heart no matter what uh, commercial system we use or financial system we use. <laughs> greed rules our hearts. And Jesus has come to set us free from that. Right? So, um, <clears throat> Anyhow, they said, they basically washed their hands with it. What is that to us? You see to it. They say, it's your problem, Judas. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. Some see a contradiction here between what Matthew writes and what uh, Luke writes when he begins the book of Acts. Luke says that he fell headlong and he uh, burst open in the middle and his entrails gushed out. It's one of my favorite verses in all the scripture. Uh, <laughs> I'm just I'm just a 14-year-old boy. So uh, <laughs> uh, so some people have said, oh, well, obviously there's contradiction there. I think that this is like a very easy uh, criticism, I think, to deal with. Certainly if Judas hanged himself, it's possible that something like a rope broke or birds came and ate him and he, his body opened up and gushed out all the goodies inside of it. Uh, or the rope broke and he fell down and burst open that way. Or, as was suggested by... Uh, um, a Jewish uh, Christian named uh, um, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, he suggests that um, that if he hanged himself, he would have defiled the city or nearby the city, so the Jews would have purposely taken his body and just thrown it out into into Gehenna, literally into the Valley of Hinnom, <laughs> outside of the city there, that place that Jesus referred to several times. So uh, he um, he believes that it may be that after he hanged himself, because Cursed is anyone who hangs from a tree. That's what the law says. And this is why it's remarkable that Jesus is pinned to a tree. He becomes a curse for us, right? The law had said, Cursed is anyone who hangs from a tree. So uh, because he had defiled the city, they would have taken his body and just thrown it outside of the city. And, uh, and so possibly then is when he fell headlong and burst open and his entrails gushed out. I just like to say it over and over again. So just to remind you of what happened because apparently I'm still 14. Uh, anyhow, um, <laughs> so he went and hanged himself. It's really such a sad end, right? And it's a, a warning to us and a reminder that just because somebody is part of a group doesn't mean that they necessarily are actually following Jesus. And I say that only to say this. Don't let it be you. <laughs> you follow Jesus. You trust Him. Lay your life down. If you're wrestling, if you're, if you're wondering, let's talk about it. Let's, let's work through that stuff together. That's why we're here. That's why we gather, okay? Sometimes people are like, well, how can people in church act like that? Like, listen. Judas was hand-selected by Jesus to be in his group, right? In the twelve and still did what he did, okay? And that sad verse that, I believe it's John who records it when he says, after the bread entered him at supper, Satan entered Judas. Ooh, it just gives me chills every time I, I think about it. <clears throat> then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. The chief priest took the silver pieces and said... It is not lawful to put them into the treasury because they are the price of blood. This is laughable, right? They had agreed to have Jesus betrayed by one of his friends for this price of a slave for 30 shekels of silver. 
and then it comes back to them because Judas says, I've betrayed innocent blood, and now they're like, whoa, 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 we can't put this money into the temple treasury. This is the price of blood. You know, now, oh, now they're all being holy. You're like, what? <clears throat> because they are the price of blood. And they consulted together, and they bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. This type of transaction would have been done in the name, if you would, of the person who owned the money itself. So this is probably why Luke writes in the book of Acts that it was Judas, or it was done in the name of Judas, that this field, field this field, this field was purchased, that they eventually called a field of blood, or Akeldama, which is the Aramaic way to say that field of blood. It was outside of the city. Some have suggested again that it was in that area of the Valley of Hinnom, or the Valley of Tophet, as it had once been called, the place that Jesus referred to as Gehenna. The Greek word is Gehenna. Uh, we have that translated hell frequently in, our, uh, in the New Testament, that word Gehenna. Uh, some believe that it was in that area. It was a place where potters dug for broken for clay and for pottery and uh, to make pottery and stuff like that. Uh, so it was the potter's field. Then verse nine says, uh, "Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying." Now stop right here. Jeremiah the prophet doesn't ever say this. <laughs> what do we do with that? Let's read what it says first. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Some of you might have a footnote there that flips you to Jeremiah 32. That's fine. If you read the story in Jeremiah 32, you find that Jeremiah is commanded by the Lord to buy a plot of land from a relative, a kinsman of his, because he's the kinsman redeemer, so he's allowed to be the first person to purchase this land, and he's asked to buy the land, but it's not for 30 shekels of silver, it's for a different price. His, his relative's name is Hanamel. You'll find that story referenced there in Jeremiah 32, but there are some differences there. However, there is the purchase of a field. <laughs> That's referenced. I mentioned to you earlier that there are some other references to the idea of innocent blood and betrayal of innocent blood in Jeremiah chapter eight, chapters 18 and 19. But the language that's used here more closely resembles a prophecy we find in the book of Zechariah. Does that mean that Matthew was wrong? <laughs> I don't think so. I think that um, what Zechariah is referring to is this theme that's carried through the book of Jeremiah, through Jeremiah's prophecies. Some have suggested that, as is done in another case, in the beginning of the book of Mark, we'll get to a circumstance where two prophets are quoted, but only the first prophet, the major prophet, the more well-known prophet, if you would, only his name is referenced, even though two particular prophets, uh, there, there are verses from each book of the prophets. Another person has suggested that in the Babylonian Talmud, which is a, the Talmud's a commentary on the Mishnah, the Mishnah is a commentary on, on Moses, on the law, okay, so that's sort of the, the flow of Hebrew tradition. You have the, the law of Moses, and then you have the Mishnah, which is the commentary on the law of Moses, and then you have the Talmud, which is the commentary on the Mishnah, which is on the, the law of Moses, is sort of the flow of some of the traditions, that were passed down. The order of the prophets actually began with Jeremiah, and the scroll that had Jeremiah on it had the other prophets on it as well. Keep in mind that Matthew didn't have a pocket Bible that he could just grab a hold of and refer to, but he remembers that this, and certainly under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, remembers that Jeremiah talks about these themes, the betrayal of innocent blood, and he talks about the purchase of a field with, uh, with shekels of silver. And then we also find that um, specifically mentioned in Zechariah, the 30 shekels of silver, something very, very similar to what is uh, used here, uh, to the way the phrases are here in, uh, in uh, Zechariah, as we said. So I believe it's Zechariah chapter 11 is where the other um, prophecies there are mentioned, the ones that very, very closely resemble this. So it's possible that all of these were on the same scroll and Matthew's referring back to the scroll itself, uh, which began with Jeremiah, because he was the major prophet. So either way, 
I'm not too bothered by it, but I want you guys to be aware of it so that if somebody comes and throws some oddball question at you, well, you can't believe the Bible because Matthew says, Jeremiah said, and there's no place in Jeremiah where these exact phrases are used, then at least you'll be aware of it and, and you can uh, talk about it and wrestle with that stuff uh, as well So, as, uh, as you go through it. So he gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him saying, are you the king of the Jews? That's a very direct statement, right? Now, here's the issue. This becomes now a political statement. This was the thing that upset Herod the Great when the wise men came to him and they said, a king has been born, right? Herod's like, no, 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 no bro. I'm the king of this area, homeboy. We're going to squash any kind of rebellion of some other king being born of the Jews. I'm an Idumean, whatever, but I've been appointed in this area. And so I'm the king. This becomes a very political statement. And of course, this is something that Pilate needs to pay attention to, right? Because if there were other issues that had come up or that did come up that caused uprisings, it's possible that Rome would say, Pilate, you're not handling that area very well. We're going to replace you. Okay, so. Um, <clears throat> Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said to him, it is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered, nothing. There are so many times when I am in a dis discussion with someone I love when I would probably do well to just remain silent. <laughs> Remember what I said last week. When Jesus was being hurt, he neither fought back nor ran away, but he let himself be hurt, and then he forgave the people who were doing it. That is powerful. That is so powerful to me. <clears throat> then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered in not one word, so that the governor marveled greatly. See, because Jesus understood that someone else was in control here. There was something else happening. He had already accepted this. When people talk about like the stages of grief, that sort of thing, Jesus, was, he's accepted this. He's accepted what's happening. Now, uh, so that the governor marveled greatly. Now, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And at that time, they had a notorious, he was a well-known prisoner called Barabbas. Some of your translations, because of a, a different manuscript, might say uh, Jesus Barabbas, which is amazing because Jesus Barabbas would be Yeshua Baraba, which is salvation. Jesus means salvation. And Baraba means son of the father. So this guy's name is Jesus, son of the father. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> but he was a notorious criminal. <laughs> and then the real Jesus, son of the father, is the one that he's there. <laughs> like, what? It's, it's amazing. To, it's, it's shocking, right? Jesus, uh, oh, sorry, therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Messiah? So which one? You want the Son of the Father to be released, or do you want this other Yeshua, who, who is called the Messiah, who is called the Christ? You want him to be released. It was the custom that at Passover they would release one of the criminals. doesn't seem like a super great political custom to me, but I guess it pleased the people. <laughs> um maybe because of the reality of injustice, right? There's a reality of injustice that just permeates because in all the judgments that are made in, in every society, we can only do the best that we can and it's with limited information and so sometimes uh, there are situations where people are falsely arrested and people are falsely condemned I and mean, that, that stuff can happen. So uh, they have this policy of releasing one of the criminals at the, uh, at the feast. So they asked who? Uh, verse 18 says, For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. Now we have this, this other situation with Pilate's wife coming and being like, Just keep your hands off of that situation because something's going on here. 
And he knew the only reason the chief priests had handed him over was because they were envious of him, of what he was doing, and of, of, um, his, of the people that were following him. Uh, verse 20 says, But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. Just that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. Whew, that's heavy. Now, um, I want to remind you real quickly of this thing. You don't always know what's happening behind the scenes in the circumstances and situations that your life is in. You don't know what God is doing or how he's working in other people's lives and other people's hearts. You don't know the dreams that he's giving other people related to other things that you just don't know. So this is where our confidence comes back to saying, God, I need to trust you every day. I want to trust you even though I don't see and I don't understand what you're doing sometimes. Help me to trust you and know that you are able to work even if it's giving some some random lady a dream about something, you are able to still accomplish what you want to accomplish through this. Um, <clears throat> so the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. And the governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Of course, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, What then shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? They all said to him, Let him be crucified. Then the governor said, Why? What evil has he done? They cried out all the more, saying, let him be crucified. See, because Jesus didn't say anything about the accusation that Pilate gave him, are you the king of the Jews, which could be a political type of statement or accusation. Jesus didn't say anything other than it's, it's as you say, you know, and then he stopped talking after that, you know. And Pilate still is like, this is, I don't know what's going on here. I know these guys are envious. I don't see anything wrong, you know. <clears throat> When Pilate saw that he, verse 24, says, or they cried out all the more, rather, verse 23, saying, let him be crucified. And when Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. Now, here's the thing. They were not legally allowed to see to it. <laughs> it was Rome that had to actually execute capital punishment in this legal, political sense. And as any leader, any good leader knows, you don't just get to wash your hands. <laughs> it was in his power to do something different, and he did not use that power in a just way. So regardless of how he felt like he was washing his hands of it, the reality was he can't wash his hands of this. He's as guilty as they are. <clears throat> and all the people answered and said, His blood, oh, this is crushing, His blood be on us and on our children. Indeed, it would only be, it would be this generation, 40 years later, the blood of these children would be, would be slaughtered by Rome. When the Roman general Titus Vespasian came through and, and essentially leveled Israel and spread Jews throughout the Roman Empire in the diaspora. <clears throat> His blood be on us and on our children. <sighs> then he released Barabbas to them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. I want to mention something here that I, I want to caution you about this. So all it says is that he scourged Jesus. Now, what we've done is we've tried to make up a lot of stuff about what this meant. It's a very simple, straightforward statement. And we've said, well, scourgings happen with a cat of nine tails, and a cat of nine tails is this, this whip that has these nine things on, and they tie on the end of it bone and glass and other stuff, and they'd whip people with that. Certainly, there's some evidence to support that Rome did that. Is that what was done here? I don't know. It just says he was scourged. Also, we, we say this. We say the law of Moses says that uh, a person, when they're being punished, is not to receive more than 40 stripes. So the tradition of Israel was that they would give 40 minus 1, which is 39 stripes. Here's the problem with that, suggesting that that's all that Jesus got or that's what he got. It wasn't Israel that, that beat him. It was Rome. Maybe they did the 40 stripes minus 1. I don't know. <laughs> But he was being scourged, not by the Jews, but by the Romans. Okay? And it was the Jewish tradition to do 40 stripes minus one. 
What we do know is that he was scourged, and throughout history, there are other writings in history that suggest that some people died just itself from Roman scourging. It was enough to kill someone. Obviously, depending on circumstances and depending on the weight and depending on all of that stuff, you know. So, <clears throat> I just want to caution you on that. Some of that stuff is stuff that we've kind of developed <laughs> over the years to kind of add to this very simple statement, he was scourged. And I've got to rest in the fact that I don't know exactly what that looked like, but um, I'm sure that it was horrifying. <clears throat> when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium. We'll finish up pretty quickly here. They took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. And they stripped him naked. And then they put a scarlet robe on him. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his hand like a king's scepter. They dressed him up as a mockery to a king. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him. And they took the reed and they struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him and put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. Now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, or Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. Apparently so weak that he could not continue carrying his cross, whether it was the full cross or whether it was the cross beam. Some have suggested it was only the cross beam, that the, uh, the upright post was already there, and they would go and attach it and then stand it up. But I, I wasn't there. <laughs> And neither were any of those commentators saying all of that stuff either. <laughs> Obviously, it says here, they compelled Simon to carry his cross. When they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull. That's what Golgotha means, the place of the skull. They gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted, or when he had tasted it, he would not drink. This is fascinating. Some have suggested Jesus was unwilling to take in anything into his body that might dull the pain. He just endured. He he carried the weight. He he carried the hurt. When he had tasted it, he would not drink. Interesting thing about Golgotha and about this whole range, this mountain range is Mount Zion. It's referred to throughout the scriptures, the range of mountains. Really, we might think of them as hills. If you've been to like mountains in like the United States and stuff, like that's not Israel. Like it's, it's a very hilly land, but they're referred to as mountains. And Mount Zion is like that. And that's where the city of Jerusalem is located. And it also happens to be the mountain where in Genesis chapter 22, Abraham is told to go up that mountain and to offer his only son, Isaac. And Abraham says, wait here, guys, the boy and I will return. Because he believed that God would just raise, raise his son from the dead if he had to. <laughs> this happened on the same mountain range. <clears throat> then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots. It's like sort of uh, throwing dice. Casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there, and they put up over his head the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And some of the other New Testament writers tell us that the inscription said, This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And it was written in three different languages. It was written in Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. Interesting thing about the Hebrew one, I've been told, is that each of the beginning letters of this phrase 
would be YHVH. Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. YHVH is the abbreviation, is the way that Israel wrote the name of God in the Old Testament. It's fascinating. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and another on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. You know who that sounds like? In the very beginning, when Jesus is fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, three times Satan comes to him and says what? If you're the Son of God, help yourself. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking with the scribes and elders, said he saved others. Himself, he cannot save. Listen, the reality is, the only way he could truly save others is if he didn't save himself here. That is how he rescued us. was by not looking at his own life, by not loving his own life, by enduring the cross even to the point of death. That is how he rescued others. And he teaches us this incredible paradox that if we want to find life, we have to lose our lives for his sake, right? But he demonstrates this paradox for us and how we can come to believe that it is true is because we see it demonstrated in the life of Jesus. When the whole world is saying, find your life, find yourself, Jesus is saying, lose your life and then you'll find it. <clears throat> He saved others himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him come down. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him Excuse me, with the same thing. Now we know from the other gospel writers that one of them eventually changes his tune. Right? One of those robbers crucified with him. But it's not pertinent to what Matthew's focus is and what Matthew's telling us here. Now, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. Three hours of darkness. Some have said that this was an eclipse. I don't know how there was a three hour long eclipse. Um, <laughs> but uh, and I have tried to dig into this in my um, in my uh, past. I, I looked into some of this, and there are apparently some scant records uh, in in several different cultures of a time period where there was in the middle of the day in this region of the world just darkness, randomly. <laughs> about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani that is my God, my God why have you forsaken me that's the Aramaic phrase Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani my God, my God why have you forsaken me I think the reason why Jesus says this is that he's bringing the attention of his hearers and of us to um, the psalmist to Psalm 22. Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, this man is calling for Elijah. Remember the prophets have said Elijah would come before the great, for the day of the Lord, right? And so now they're like, he's calling for Elijah. Elijah didn't die, right? Elijah was caught up, right? So immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on the reed and offered it to him to drink. <clears throat> The rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. I love that. Nobody took his life from him. Even in all that he suffered, he's the one who gave it up. He, he willing, he yielded up his spirit because he loves you. Guys. If God did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, 
how much more will he not with him freely give us all things? Don't be afraid. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth quaked and the rocks were split. That veil was not really like a bride's veil. It was a giant curtain that took many men to lift up and hang in the temple itself. And it made the separated the holy place in the temple from the most holy place, which is where the Ark of the Covenant was supposed to be, was behind there. And they were only to go in there once a year on Yom Kippur uh, with the blood of the, the uh, offering that was to be offered and sprinkle it there on the altar or on the, um, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, which was called the mercy seat. That's just what the lid of it was called. And um, it was the place where God met with them. Essentially, if they thought, where is God? That would be the place where they thought God was. And so now with this, with this uh, veil being torn in half, it's almost as if God is saying, just come on. <laughs> it's open now because of the sacrifice of Jesus. The way is, is open now. And I love that it's torn in two from where? From top to bottom. Not like a man grabbed it at the bottom and started tearing it up because it's hanging way up in the sky, way up in the, in the air, basically, in the temple. But from top to bottom, as if God were the one who tore it. Because he did. <laughs> and the earth quaked and the rocks were split and the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the graves after his resurrection they went into the holy city and appeared to many it's a couple things i want to take note of one is that it says that these bodies of the saints that were raised um it says um coming out of the graves when after his resurrection right because he's the firstborn from the dead he's the first fruit but with him, if he's the first fruit, it's the guarantee that there are others to come. And that includes you if you've trusted him. That's the great news, guys. Death has no hold on me. <laughs> um, and so when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God, I bet. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were there looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Now, when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, um, which he had hewn out of the rock, and he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. So the point of this part of the story is to show that Jesus was buried among the rich, if you would, which is a fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah 53. I want to turn your attention to Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. I want you to look those up later today, and I want you to read through them, because both of them are descriptions of what Jesus suffered on the cross that are written hundreds of years before he was ever born. And then also Isaiah 53 references this idea of him being buried with, with his grave being with the rich, that sort of thing, which is fascinating that Joseph of Arimathea, this rich man, offers Jesus his, his new tomb, right? It's this incredible fulfillment of that prophecy. But also take note that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, they saw where he was buried because some people said, oh, well, when they went to the tomb, they just went to the wrong one. And so that's why they didn't find his body. And so there really was no resurrection. That's what criticism some people have. But they knew. They loved this man. And they had followed him for years. They knew. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people he has risen from the dead. They're preempting this idea of the resurrection from the dead, of it being taught, because they knew that Jesus had already said he was going to come back, and they didn't believe him. So now they're like, we've got to set a guard here, we've got to make sure that nobody steals his body, because if they steal his body, they can just say, oh, well, he came back from the dead, right? Because we can't find his body. So they purposefully set up a guard and sealed the tomb to make sure no one could steal his body. <clears throat> so 
so the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard, go your way, make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. <laughs> but there's another day coming. Right? I just want to I want to end with this simple statement. I do want to encourage you to read Psalm 22 tonight and Isaiah 53. Please read both chapters. It's your homework. Mm-hmm. I don't want homework. Get over it. Um, and then <laughs> uh, I want to remind you of this statement that Paul makes where he says, God made him in, in his letters to Corinth, he says in 2 Corinthians, he says, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This incredible exchange that has happened because of the sacrifice of Jesus. And as I referenced a minute ago, um, Paul would also say, um, if, if he gave Jesus for us, if he offered him up for us all, how much more will he not freely give you all good things? Ask your father. Keep asking him. Like any good father, he says no to you a lot. <laughs> Just like I do to my crazy kids when they ask me for crazy stuff. I'm like, no. What do you know? Like, because they just don't, they don't understand, right? It's not because I don't love them. In fact, frequently I say no because I do love them. And I want to keep them from things they don't have to experience and I mean so many other in- wonderful things about the reality of God and how he answers our prayers sometimes with no but keep asking keep seeking keep knocking and remember this guys they made a mockery of him as king but I want you to see this the way that he endured and embraced and just went in this and just did it and he really is the king <laughs> He is the sovereign one of the universe. And next week we're going to see that all authority is given to this king. What you afraid of, guys? What you think is hard for him? All authority on heaven and earth has been delivered to him. I'm already getting in next week. Okay, read ahead. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for, the great, for your great kindness to us. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you, Father. We have this relationship with you, not because we are good people, but because you have rescued us by the blood of the Lamb. You've forgiven our sin. It's all because of you and to the praise of the glory of your grace, Lord. And may it always be that. Help us never to be proud or arrogant or to think that we're better than anybody else because we only stand right with you because of Jesus alone. And if our confidence is in anything else, it is It is sorely misplaced. Lord, would you help us to trust? (laughs) To trust in our King and in this reality of the kingdom of the heavens, the kingdom of God that is among us. Because we know that the kingdom of God is righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. Would you make that true in our lives? Fill us with your Spirit, Lord. Keep changing us with your patient, persistent love. And make us more like you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Hey, the Lord bless you guys and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious with you. And the Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace, you guys. You're dismissed. Go grab your